Hello, my warrior loves. Welcome to Beyond Body, a mini series where we are exploring body image and how to change the internal and external scripts that influence the way you think and feel about your own body. Subscribe and follow along to hear real life stories and experiences on the path to body image healing. Now, if negative body image is holding you back and fueling your eating disorder, listen up. This February, we are curating a small, intimate group of warriors for Beyond Body, a six-month body image accelerator program that brings together tangible practices you can call on for the rest of your life and an intimate group format for deep learning, healing, and integration. Now, we officially start in March, so February is the time to get your application in and get on a discovery call to see if Beyond Body is for you. Beyond Body is a safe container designed for women in their mid to late 30s, 40s, and 50s who want to do real, long-lasting work to improve their body image so this one precious life can be enjoyed more fully and freely. With the right approach, skills, and support, body dissatisfaction doesn't have to hold you back in your relationships and career. If you want to make this the year you do deeper body image healing work during the spring and summer months, request an invite to apply for Beyond Body at recoverywarriors.com beyond. Spots are limited, so get yours in now by requesting an invite to apply at recoverywarriors.com beyond. Today I'm with Kim. She has just been a consistent source of awesome in my life over the past few years as I've gotten to know her inside the Courage Club through our group calls and daily gratitudes. And I've just admired so many ways, shapes and forms, the way that Kim shows up in life and how far she's come in recovery and the leveling up that I've seen take place in all areas, including her career and just the way that she's connecting with people in her family. And it's just beautiful to, to see that blossom inside the Courage Club and in your life, Kim. So welcome. So happy to have you here. Oh, thank you so much. It's, it's awesome to be here. Well, let's hop in. Let's get into the very beginning, like when it all begins. At what age did you first become aware that your body was something to manage and keep small? What was going on in your life at that time? Oh, so very young. As far as being aware of size and the value placed on smaller bodies, probably by age six or seven, I was aware that larger bodies were often viewed differently. I was born in the backstretch of the 80s, grew up in the 90s and early 2000s. And I really just think that diet culture was so effectively woven into pop culture in a pretty sinister way at that time. <laughs> Every fad diet and diet program under the sun, it seems, was something that emerged or came up when I was growing up and the types of media available and the dawn of the internet made spreading these messages so easy. And we've been so bombarded by this messaging and most people don't even realize the role that that exposure has played in shaping their values and beliefs. And I was actually really surprised in your story that you managed not to be extremely influenced by it until you were a little older. <laughs> That's true. Huh? I didn't think about like all the commercials. Yeah, like infomercials, celebrity spokespersons, it was just everywhere. And I mean, I was in a small body before the eating disorder. So the awareness I had was really probably more of a perception of how people's bodies were evaluated around me. Growing up, most of my female role models in my family, extended family, close family friends, were almost always dieting and frequently talking about needing to lose weight and how bad foods were. 
And I mean, I can remember we used to have a lot of potluck type get togethers. And, you know, typically that started with the women all gathering around the table and putting the dishes out and talking about what they made. And they would all be saying things like, this dish is so bad. I just brought it for the kids or (laughs) like proudly declaring if they somehow made it, quote unquote, guilt free by making it fat free or sugar free. And I really think that was such a byproduct of, you know, everyone becoming so self-conscious of their bodies and food becoming so vilified if it had fat, carbohydrates or sugar in it based on whatever the fad diet of the month was at that time. That if you brought a dish that contained any of those ingredients to a picnic, it was like you were put in this position where you felt the need to justify why you brought the poison to the picnic. And (laughs) the the sad irony of that is the food wasn't the poison, it was the mindset. Yeah, totally. Right. And that was the like time where like low fat, fat free started to kick in and fat became vilified, sugar became vilified. I love how you said the poison to the picnic, but that's really the the poison is the thinking. For sure. And, you know, being small was often pointed out to me. My one great grandmother's nickname for me was skinny mini. And as a kid, that was like a point of pride because it was offered up as praise. So I was never really pressured to lose weight, but it was often pointed out to me by women who were struggling with their weight to enjoy being small while you can. One day it will all change and you won't be able to eat whatever you want anymore. And I don't believe they were trying to instill a fear of getting fat in me as a small child, but it definitely impacted me and made me kind of want to prove them wrong. Like that's not going to happen to me. (laughs) And think about taking away your innocence of just like being in your natural body and like just, you know, at that age and now having to think about like, in a way they're, they're just pushing their own insecurities like onto you about their own body insecurities. Yeah. It was just a projection. And, and, you know, like I, I don't have kids of my own, but I have one nephew and six nieces right now. And I am so aware of or protective of, like I observe them observing all of us when we're all together, like the things that adults talk about around them because they're like little sponges. And I know like they're picking up all of these things that we're saying if, you know, somebody's like, oh, I need to lose a few pounds or whatever. Like kids notice that. They do. They're very perceptive. And I think it even goes beyond words. Like I think it's even just watching how people eat and behaviors and For sure. And like, apart from the ever present diets, like I really had a pretty stable environment. Uh, You know, both of my parents worked and worked pretty hard to build up a little bit from starting with next to nothing. So for me, I think more of the emphasis was always on you're going to get good grades. You're going to go to college. Like you're going to go get that four year degree and, and do these things with your life. And all of that encouragement was intended to be just that, you know, encouraging and motivating to do well. But I think I was a pretty sensitive kid. I was an only child. So I hung out with a lot of adults and that perceptiveness we were talking about. Like, I think I was pretty observant of, you know, emotional shifts and dynamics with people. And I got praised for being mature and well-behaved. So I like soaked that up and it got to the point where people didn't need to encourage me or pressure me to do anything. I was going to do that myself. (laughs) What was your biggest body insecurity back then and how has it evolved Mm. So really when I was like elementary school, other than just being like a perfectionist and a worrier, I don't think I was super worried about my body. But when I got into like the high school frame, I think my whole body was kind of my insecurity at that time. I was a year younger than most of my graduating class. And I 
was a little bit of a physical late bloomer too. So I was kind of going through my awkward, gangly kind of phase as my classmates were easing out of that. And, you know, I was a little bit more of a tomboy, kind of petite, flat-chested twiggy. So I just felt strange anyway. You know, the boys all liked girls with boobs and booties. So I was like, well, that's not me. I'm not going to get a boyfriend. Yeah. So did you, like, when you were working through it, did you just start to feel like, I'm not, like, attractive? Like, were those things that came in? Or were you just more, like, I'll connect with people through my intelligence? Like, you see if there's any like themes that came up in the way you tried to relate with your your peers? I think so I was a little bit socially eccentric and awkward. <laughs> a little very, very tomboyish. I've always been more outdoorsy, like hunting, fishing, and just kind of a different bird. <laughs> and so I deep down I really wanted to be accepted and to feel like I fit in. But I definitely had like a would lead with like an I don't care kind of attitude. So I was a little bit of a smart ass and would like just kind of quick witted lash out at the first hint that I thought maybe somebody was going to make fun of me or, or reject me kind of just had this like, I don't care what you think. I don't need your standards. I don't need your acceptance. And, you know, but deep down, I really just wanted to, to feel like I fit in. So I definitely had a little bit of probably a standoffishness with it. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, if you're like a year and a half younger too, that is a whole different, like, because developmentally during that time span, it's like leaps and bounds, like what a year can do in a kid's development. And yeah, and there's a, I think this is interesting and maybe, maybe it's not, maybe it wasn't as unique as I think it is, but there seemed to be a lot of eating disorders at my high school. And I went to a very small school in rural Western Pennsylvania my graduating class had between 60 and 70 kids and grades seven through 12 were all in one building with less than 500 total students. And from the class below me, my grade, the year ahead of me and the grade ahead of them. So four classes, I can think of at least 11 girls who had eating disorders and who knows how many more that I was not aware of. And I don't know if people generally knew about me apart from a close friend or two, but a lot of people knew about some of the other girls and talked about it like, oh, yeah, so-and-so's bulimic, like it's like trendy or some kind of joke. And it's so strange to me thinking back on it, how prevalent it was or how known about it was and that nobody really thought much of it. Yeah, that is. So were, did these people like were people made aware of it because they had to go to treatment and leave or just because it like it was just being talked about? A mixture, a mixture. There was, there were some people where it was talked about. Some of the older girls were super popular and cheerleaders. And it was like, oh, maybe it's like kind of cool because they're pretty and popular and that's just something you do. And, you know, there were, there was a girl in my class who just like passed out and was taken out of school in an ambulance. Then there was a, another girl I remember who had left for the last few months of the school year because she was in treatment. So just like a variety of exposure to it. I wonder too, if because you were struggling with it yourself, that you were more like perceptive or aware of all the, like I find that someone with an eating disorder can spot an eating disorder. You can like smell yeah. it from a mile yeah, away. You're like, <laughs> like, oh, I see you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that, that is a lot of, in such a small school. How did food and exercise tie into the way you tried to fit a body ideal? And how do you see it differently today? So... 
the behavior side of it really didn't start for me until I was a sophomore, until I was about 15 years old. And it started, I had joined the track team the first time that spring, and I wasn't really athletic. And during my sophomore year, I had had my first boyfriend in like ninth grade, and he broke up with me at the beginning of my sophomore year and kind of tied into when I actually started physically developing a little bit too. Like my hips were a little bit thicker. I wasn't big by any means, but puberty made me super hyper aware of the changes in my body. And so he had broken up with me, got a new girlfriend and <laughs> was always talking about how skinny she was like in the lunch line. And I had lunch with them and small school, you can't get away from anybody. <laughs> so I think I started to internalize that a little bit and that, Ooh, maybe I'm not skinny enough. Like maybe that's why I got rejected. And so right before we had broken up, I had gotten into some trouble with him with drinking. And so after we broke up, my parents encouraged me to pick up a sport, kind of a, you need to get your shit together and round out your activities for college applications, a little come to Jesus moment with them. So it came time to pick out a sport and like, there wasn't really anything I was really inclined toward, but my ex-boyfriend and his new girlfriend were on the track team. So I had a little bit of a wild hair about that. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Some of my friends encouraged me. So I joined the track team (laughs) and talk about being out of my element. Like I was not fast enough to be a sprinter, not strong enough to throw a shot put very far and not particularly coordinated to have any business jumping, hurdling or pole vaulting. So I ended up on the distance running team, like kind of a catch all like, here you go, clumsy, just run, (laughs) try not to fall. I'll give you like hours to figure it out. (laughs) Right. And Ended up making some friends, though. The distance team had some pretty funny personalities. They were generally pretty welcoming and kind of took me under their wing. So during the first few track meets, the distance running coach had me in the 400, which is like an all-out sprint for a lap around the track. And that was never, ever going to be my forte. (laughs) And sometimes the 800, which I did better because I had a little more distance. But after the first few meets, I was really tired of being humiliated in the 400 and I had joined a sport for the sake of looking good on a college application. So I needed to get into an event where I stood a chance at placing scoring points, maybe earning an athletic letter. And I really wanted to run the mile and the distance coach for some reason didn't want to put me in it. But my teammates were like, just go ask the head coach to put you in like he will. Don't worry about it. So I asked him, he agreed. And to everybody's surprise, most especially my own, I actually did well. I didn't win, but I beat some of the veteran runners on my team. And like, as I was passing people in like the third lap and realized I still had energy in the last one, just felt amazing. Like, wow, I can do something. I'm good at something. And I'll never forget after that race, our top runner who was a year ahead of me kind of took an interest in me and was really giving me all kinds of advice of how to get good in the mile. And At one point we were using the restroom and I was just absorbing all of these insights about how to train, doing different workouts with her and other teammates. And I remember we were at the sink washing our hands and as if it were the most normal thing in the world to say, she goes, yeah, and when you're lighter, you run faster. So toward the end of the season, we try to cut weight to get faster in time for districts. So sometimes I throw out my dinner around then to drop weight. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that hits me as if somebody threw a brick at me right now. 
But at that time, there were no alarm bells. I was, it was just in my mental notes, like train harder, lift weights, start throwing up your dinner at the end of the season. <laughs> like, Oh my gosh, right? Because you looked up to her too, right? Because she's somebody who's like the position that you would want to get in possibly next year. Or- yeah, yeah, for sure. So that spring, I continued to progress and do well in the mile. I earned points. I lettered in track every year that I did it. And I did start throwing up at the end of the season and I, I stopped at the end of the season. It hadn't really registered or taken a hold of me. So it's not like I started going so far as to weigh myself or do any of those other types of behaviors to start noticing what kind of difference I thought it was making. But I signed up for cross country in the fall then, and that was my junior year. I had really bad shin splints and spent most of that season injured. But by the end of the season, I was improving. And that was early November, about a month before our Christmas dance. And my high school didn't have a formal homecoming dance in the fall, but our Christmas dance and prom were our formal dances. And again, this culture in my school and area, there was always a lot of talk ahead of the dances about getting a dress and fitting into a certain size. Again, strange to me to think back that like girls are talking about, oh, I went to the dress shop on Main Street. You would think you would say, oh, it was a purple dress. No, it was a size zero. (laughs) You know, like everybody was talking about what size they fit into. So at that time, I was thinking about the dance and it was kind of a no brainer, like, oh, I'll just throw out my dinner again to drop weight for the dance like I did for track. (laughs) And I had a different boyfriend at that time who was not really a good person. And I think the dynamics of that relationship paired with some of the praise that I got about how I looked at the dance and then, you know, coming strong off of, you know, recovered running season, knowing I was going to be strong and better in track that year it all kind of started to create this perfect storm for me to start to get obsessed with my weight and start tying it to my performance and ultimately my self-worth. Sounds like eating disorders were really like Pennsylvania, huh? (laughs) I mean, I know it's global, but like that does sound (laughs) like- Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) It is like the environment you were in was not conducive to building healthy body image. And did this continue these behaviors into college? Like, did you just start to take this- like your food behaviors and the way you related to your size, was that all just going into the college years and beyond? Yeah, really after that dance my junior year, I just was like, well, I'm just going to stay thin. And I started working out ahead of track season. I think it started in March was when we would do conditioning. So through the winter, I was like just prepping for track. And, you know, my initial behavior started with just throwing up dinner and then eventually doing that while training and working out, I would get really hungry again before bed (laughs) and it would turn into like another binge purge cycle. And then, you know, still in high school, I actually, I started taking laxatives and diet pills. Ephedrine was still sold over the counter when I was in high school. So someone who was 18 would buy us diet pills that were amphetamines. (laughs) And like by my senior year, like my spring track season, end of my senior year, my day was like, I would skip breakfast at lunch, I would either binge and throw up or I would just eat a dry salad. So like lettuce with no cheese, no dressing. And, you know, I was basically starving and popping speed during the day at school, then going to practice and working out and binging and throwing up in the evenings and then sometimes taking laxatives before bed. So I'd start the next day super dehydrated and then rinse and repeat. That continued into college and and got worse then because like, you know, in high school, I had to kind of sneak around and do that around my parents a little bit. And then I got a little freedom in college and I ran cross country in college. Ephedrine was finally banned. (laughs) Then there were still 
other diet pills available. So I used to take like the super caffeinated, like ripped fuel, hydroxy cut Fahrenheit type things. Oh, oh, and the campus doctor prescribed me an albuterol inhaler because I had trouble breathing when I ran sometimes. So I was diagnosed with exercise induced asthma without ever really having a breathing test. (laughs) So I would have like 8am class and, you know, again, still didn't really eat breakfast back then would take a puff of albuterol and a diet pill or like a sugar free Red Bull and just be sitting in class like jittery, like trying not to convulse. (laughs) Wow. Oh my God, your poor nervous system. Holy shit. Holy shit. Like I'm thinking of like Kim's nervous system like since like high school. Poor nervous system. Well, and I was nervous since I was eight anyway, you know, and then I just started taking all this caffeine and making it worse. Um, But Do you think that actually like though because of the nervousness and then the way you just like repress, like cut it all off, you know, like suppress any appetite and all that, that it actually probably calmed that or did the nerves get more like, cause sometimes when people they find with restriction that it actually can help quench the anxiety to some point or qual it. And then, then it just gets worse. At some point it can be a mechanism to try to uh, suppress anxiety. I think that makes sense. And I think too, like my days were even a little bit reflexive of that. Like start of the day would be like restriction and caffeine and it would get me through going to classes and being calm. And then like, I would have cross-country practice in the afternoon and then it was like dinner I would let loose like that's when like the evening cycle of of binging and you know just going through all of that then so I think it was like this I would kind of suppress the anxiety and just be like on and focused during the day and then you know the evening was like when I just cut loose and like just numbed out and you know had that sense of release too from throwing up mm-hmm yeah. But did a lot of guilt come in though then and like shame for that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I had a roommate who never openly admitted it, but also had very disordered eating as well. We basically bonded over being chem lab partners, popping diet pills, going to the tanning bed and calling ourselves fat. So it was like a really, really unhealthy friendship, but, you know, it was how we bonded at the time. So you know, and I would work out for my sport. And then sometimes I'd go to the gym with her and do cardio and the elliptical afterwards or something. And I I definitely believed that if I could just follow a workout program and control my food or take the right diet pills, that I would end up having the body I dreamed of and everything would be all better. Like if I achieved all of those things, it would alleviate the pressure and anxiety and overwhelming feelings that I had. And even when I started thinking about recovery, I really often wanted to stop binging and purging, but the plan or my escape route out of it was always thinking, okay, well, I'll replace it with restriction and extreme workouts. And that never worked. You know, you go through various phases of, of your recovery and it took a really long time to understand that restricting or following rules about food deeming anything as bad or off limits is really just a setup for a binge because you want the thing that you can't have. And with regard to exercise, I actually like, I really loved and I still do love running, but I would often use the mileage and the calorie burn as means to justify or earn my food intake when I started trying not to purge anymore. I'd be wearing body monitors. And this was before you had like the sleek watch designs. I had this big gray strap with a white box on it. It was actually the body media monitor that contestants on The Biggest Loser used. I had this big clunky monitor. This was after I graduated college and was working. Like 
I would wear it with my nice dress clothes for work and just have this big monitor on my arm. And people would be like, what is that? Do you have a medical condition? I'm like, it's my body monitor. Like I'm some sort of elite athlete. (laughs) Oh my God, I can't. hysterical. Um, So, I mean, it's really evolved a lot, you know, from then to now, like to still be able to run, I've really had to work on my mindset and always be aware of my intentions with what I'm trying to accomplish when I work out. If there are days that I'm really struggling with my body image, I might choose to meditate or go for a walk. Or if I want to run, I don't take a watch or anything that's going to give me any sort of data or statistic about my, (laughs) my workouts, just going by feel. So it's being aware of what I'm doing and trying not to compensate. Yeah. You're finding that more like intuitive movement, and then mm-hmm. the intuitive eating, right, is something that you have been able to venture into. Absolutely. And I, I love to lift weights and do yoga now. You know, back then, it was just all about keeping the number on the scale as low as possible. So muscular body weighs more, you know, and now I really appreciate my body feeling strong and powerful and just noticing a difference in how much more successful and enjoyable movement is when my body is adequately fueled. <laughs> like, yeah, actually, you think better, you perform better whenever you have food in your body. Oh, yeah. Your brain capacity is like way high. I mean, like, yeah, you perform better in all areas of life when you're nourished. And I think it can be easy to think, no, like, that's not the case. But once you're living it, you're like, wow, energy is re- like having energy feels good. <laughs> like Being strong feels good. Don't have to be weak all the time and mentally drained. Now I, I know, like, I feel things if I don't get enough to eat, get a headache, or I feel, you know, just off. Like I can tell that there's a difference and, you know, eating and and taking care of myself is the way to mitigate it. So, you know, it's just a part of my routine now. Yeah. Hashtag (laughs) self-care. Does anyone in your life make body image healing harder for you? I feel like I'm going to echo everybody here and say not intentionally, (laughs) but a lot of those who did make it a lot harder, I've kind of already cut out of my life at this point, I had to evaluate a lot of relationships and interactions with people when I really started to get more serious about my recovery. You know, the roommate that I mentioned before, you know, we kept in touch after college, but didn't really hang out. I had a super long commute after work and we would talk on the phone a lot. And then, you know, a few years later, she had asked me to be in her wedding and hanging out with her more again. I realized I couldn't be close to that anymore got like, a, I remember we met up for her to do her bridesmaid ask. And, you know, I was trying to expand on like eating different foods and being okay with it. And, you know, she ordered a salad with no cheese and no dressing on it. And I got, I think like an appetizer flatbread. And I was training for races at that time. Like I definitely could have even eaten more than that. But to me, it was like, okay, I want to be able to sit down at a restaurant and eat this and be okay with it. And I just remember they sat this flatbread down in front of me and she just looked at it and looked up at me and was like, are you going to eat all of that? And I think like it was like in shame. I only ate like half of it and had it put in a box. And I'm pretty sure I ate the rest of it on my drive home. (laughs) And so I just kind of realized at that point, like, you know, I can't be close to this. But really, most of the other people were not intentional. Um, Various points in my career, I call it the office lady phenomenon. call it that because it was primarily women I worked with who occasionally men would do it too, but they just kind of really observed what everybody was or wasn't eating for lunch. Like 
sitting in the lunchroom, like watching you heat it up and being like, oh, she eats everything and doesn't gain an ounce or, oh, so-and-so must be on a diet. They're eating salad today. And, And I think that happened because so many people were struggling with their own weight and were so miserable from restricting food. And I was gonna say they're hungry. They're hungry. Like if you're literally looking at other people are eating, you're hungry. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I was like seeing my skinny bulimic ass walk in with a foot long hoagie and a bag of chips. They were probably like, that's not fair. (laughs) Like, What's she doing? And it's like, of course, they didn't understand what was really going on with me at that time either. But I've experienced that nearly everywhere I've worked where there's been like an office setting or, you know, a break room where people eat together. (laughs) In the holidays, I know it can be a hard time too because like there's more thing people bring more sweets in and then that can become a whole topic of discussion and just bring in more diet talk. Yeah. I mean, I worked in a hospital for a while and I can remember just eating my lunch the one day and there was a group of younger women who, who worked. I was like 30 and they were in their early 20s. And one of the girls looked at me while I was eating my lunch and goes, and how is it that you're so skinny? And I'm like, ooh, yikes. <laughs> Wow. What do I say back to that? I mean, but there's always like this weird standard where like, I would never have looked at somebody bigger than me and been like, oh, how is it that you you're so big? You know, like, but just, you know, there's this weird standard where people feel like it's okay to comment on, you know, what you're eating or the size of your body. And they particularly feel like it's okay if you're in a smaller body. And it's like, oh, no, (laughs) let's not go there. Right? Because internally, you're like, whoa, I am like, so not okay with food. <laughs> like, This has been a major issue for me. Well, even in different points of like, bringing my lunches and having something having prepared something from home where I felt like I'm okay with eating this, you know, and then having somebody be like, wow, you can really put it away. And then you're kind of second guessing yourself going, Oh, am I overeating? Am I am I not? You know, it, it messes with your ability to to engage with intuitive eating too. That's why it's so helpful to not have comments on your plate and like allow yourself to just be able to adjust to, you know, your hunger levels and what what your body needs. I agree. Those comments can be so off-putting and like you're saying, make you question your decisions. For sure. For sure. And I mean, now for the very most part, you know, anybody in my life who knows what I've been through generally doesn't bring up too much body or diet talk around me. And absolutely everyone respects if I ask for a topic change, if I'm like, yeah, can we talk about something else? Maybe, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, sorry. (laughs) You know, so and if it's people who don't know, I've gotten to a point where I'm pretty comfortable being like, oh, please, there's nothing wrong with anybody's body here. Or like, please don't tell me we we are smart and funny and accomplished and we can't talk about something other than diets. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> no. That's cool. That's a, it's kind of content that we're talking about in the body project inside of Beyond Body. But like, that's perfect example of being assertive in, in your communication and kind of diffusing the moment and like, what would someone say after that? Like, yep, she's right. <laughs> like, let's move on. I love it. It's a good one. What does having bad body image cost you? Ooh, okay. So on the financial side, I actually did crunch a few numbers. I know- I love you, it. I knew you would. <laughs> you and Andrea did a, a podcast on the cost of body dissatisfaction. And I was like, yeah, I want to know. So I tried to use really conservative estimates because my eating dis- disorder spanned about 20 years. And so I landed on that over the course of 20 years, I have spent at least $100,000 on binges, 
diet pills, fad diet and workout kits, self-help books, workbooks about recovery, therapy, recovery programs, a smile restoration that I did for the damage to my teeth from bulimia. Dental insurance in the U.S. covers very little, less than $2,000 a year in most instances. And I, I needed to take care of 18 teeth at once. And we tried pushing the remainder of the balance through my medical insurance. I wrote a letter. My therapist wrote a letter. The dentist wrote up a case to appeal for medical insurance to cover the restoration because it was a dental need due to a medical condition. And medical insurance shot that down. They denied it. Nope. This is a cosmetic procedure. That contributes to the stigma, too, that people feel very misunderstood for having an eating disorder. Sometimes people think, oh, you're just a skinny little woman who's throwing up. <laughs> like, if you, like, like, it's out of vanity, not about a real problem. And so, I mean, that was big disappointment, but I had to pay for it out of pocket. I'm really glad that I had it done. And I am, you know, I'm very fortunate that I have been able to work and, and be able to pay for it. But now it's significant dental work that I'll now have to pay for the maintenance and upkeep of. So, you know, everything collectively, at least at least $100,000 over the course of 20 years. And I continue to go to therapy to manage my anxiety and perfectionism. And I continue to join groups and programs as an investment in myself. But I wanted to break those numbers down a little bit because $100,000 over 20 years is like $5,000 a year. And I think that's really important to note because there are probably a lot of people trying to recover who, you know, you're probably working, you might be taking care of a family, doing all these other things. And not only you think you don't have time to do it, but you might also think I can't afford a program. I can't afford therapy. I can't afford coaching, coaching sessions. I can't afford to go on a wellness retreat or a vacation or even just some sort of self-care thing like a massage or a yoga class or something that might help you alleviate some of that stress and anxiety. If you break down those costs and if you're bulimic or a binge eater and you can say that you spend $20 a day on binge foods at least five days a week, it's $100 a week, $5,200 a year. You can definitely afford therapy sessions, a coach, a program. You could go on a pretty luxurious vacation or a few nice <laughs> smaller vacations for $5,200. And I mean, just any amount that you're spending on engaging with behaviors, you could invest that money in something that would give you better outcomes for yourself. Totally. I agree fully. And you know, I found that the best investment you can make is yourself, not the behavior like or the things that would support the behavior. And sometimes that investment really makes you think otherwise because you're like, investment is, is something that we're putting our energy into, right? We think about it. So it's just like, if you're putting your energy there, then you're going to follow that more and you're going to take different action, you know, depending. And yeah. Wow. I love that you broke that down so well. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> beyond that though, beyond the financial cost, the eating disorder and the lack of self-esteem cost me connection in a lot of ways. It cost me so many potential friendships, cost me years of dating only emotionally unavailable men because I didn't want to be with someone who would want to see the real me and heaven forbid, want me to get better. <laughs> you know, a lot of people say that their college years were the best years of their lives. They were the most isolated and sad years of my life. And when people would say, enjoy this time, they're going to be the best years of your life. I would think, oh God, I hope not. I hope this is not all the better it gets. 
you know, opted not to have a roommate my last two years of school. And I, I hold up alone in my room with my eating disorder every evening. I did not bond with my teammates on the cross country team. And there were some great young women on that team who I probably could have had great friendships with. And, you know, even if I had dinner with the team or other classmates who I met on campus, when people would ask if I wanted to hang out after dinner or on the weekend, I was always really aloof, like ready to go find somewhere to throw up or go off campus to get more binge food and continue my little ritual through the evening. And if I did hang out with people, it was usually on a Friday or Saturday night at a party drinking, like hours after I had gotten rid of my dinner, I would go drink on an empty stomach and be a little bit of a rock and roll disaster. And (laughs) that was the only time I came out from under my social anxiety enough to hang out and have fun. And some people thought I was a lot of fun. Some thought I was a little bit too much. And no one realized that I was just self-medicating in order to even be out there. Wow. I can so relate to everything you say. Wow. And especially like, yeah, college, this is the best time of your life. You're like, oh my gosh, like this is it? Because this is terrible. (laughs) And am I like, is this now like downward slope that I'm on? Because yeah. It was a really depressing thought. Like, oh no, (laughs) if this is the peak. (laughs) Yeah, this is the peak. Like, damn, okay. (laughs) Yeah, wow. Well, what steps have you taken to repair your body image? I started with therapy and, and reading about body dysmorphia and trying to understand more about why I felt and thought the things I did. Learning about my emotions and just about identifying emotions in general and identifying them in myself too. Like I had a pretty, I know you mentioned this and so of some others, I had a pretty limited emotional repertoire, like just a select couple feelings and fat was one of them and fat is not a feeling. So just being able to be like, oh, okay, this is actually anxiety or stress about something and, and learning how to identify what that was. I tried going to Overeaters Anonymous at one point because my therapist, you know, we were talking about like, I understood a lot of the practical points, but I felt like I needed some sort of connection with other people to make my recovery better. And I feel like that can be a really accessible starting point for people. But I did find their ideology to be a little bit in conflict with what I thought true recovery would be. OA promotes abstinence, so still restricting foods if you knew they were a binge food. And again, recovery is not linear. So I think just learning how to break away from behaviors in itself is useful. But I eventually knew that true recovery to me meant that I could eat anything and trust myself not to binge or compensate afterward. I didn't want the peak of my recovery to be, okay, I just don't eat cake anymore because I'm afraid that I'm going to eat the whole cake and throw it up. It's that if I want a piece of cake, I can have a piece of cake. And if I don't eat something, I want it to be because I don't like it or just don't want it, not because there's any fear or attachment, anything external tied to it. And so, you know, and after trying to go through that connection piece and kind of not finding it, um, it just was kind of really good timing that I started looking through podcasts and kind of stumbled across Recovery Warriors and just so happened that the Courage Club was opening up for applications like in the next couple weeks. So I was like listening to all kinds of episodes thinking like, oh, this could be something, you know, it seems like it could be better. And I, I joined and got in and it, the activities that we did in there really helped me to embrace a lot of those ideas about recovery because, you know, along with not 
continuing to restrict certain foods because you were afraid they were going to trigger a binge. But like even a lot of recovery materials, one said that nobody can ever recover from an eating disorder or two were like, no, you can never exercise. And when you're dealing with anxiety and stress and other things, like being able to move your body, going for a walk outside, something, you know, there's so much benefit to those things. And so, you know, I was really appreciative that the Courage Club was something that kind of incorporated, you, you can do these things and you should. Yeah. Like the recept all, reject none. Because I think if you're white knuckling your way through something, of course, there's times where you have to like bat, find balance, right? Like if you're way on the, like, but to really allow everything to be a part of your life. And I do find the OA approach tends to be what we're like white knuckling your way through it, which just is tiring. <laughs> it's tiring. <laughs> it's it's still a battle. Um, so when you allow everything, it does change. That's That's why I say I think it's nice that it's accessible and it might be something that people can afford to dip their toe into. And if it helps you in the beginning, prove to yourself that you can not engage with the behaviors, great. But like, you have to be open to thinking about what complete recovery looks like for you beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. And have you found that? Like, because you joined the Courage Club in 2021. So it's been about three years. Have you, are you like in a, a different place than you were when you joined then? Absolutely. One of the things that the Courage Club did that was a little bit different that helped me was to, nothing really ever encouraged me to think about what my life looked like without the eating disorder. Like, what am I going to do with this time? <laughs> you know, what, what, what does this look like? What kind of activities? Because even if you get into a, a regular stage where you're not engaging with behaviors, like it's not only costly financial, it's, it's time consuming. Like that's often the time that you make for yourself to, to binge and soothe and do these things. And, you know, suddenly you're sitting there like, Hmm, well, I guess I could try something, but if you don't really have a plan for yourself to think like, Oh, do I want to go to a drawing class? Do I want to learn how to sew? Do I want to join a meetup group, a book club, whatever? Like, you kind of have to have a plan of like, oh, well, next month I'm going to try this or or whatever, just to open yourself up to other things and actually start living your life. And I think that's that's been a big shift that I've noticed is that I'm a lot more open to doing and trying new things. And, you know, some of that is also because I'm not worried about, oh, my gosh, like I can't eat dinner before I go or whatever. It's like I just eat my dinner and I go to it now. <laughs> There's That's amazing. I love it. And you, you know, you're behavior free now, right? That's been a big part of it as well. So that I think builds confidence in general when you can like overcome something. Yeah. You learn how to trust yourself. Yeah. it's a good way of putting it. What has been your biggest body image healing milestone? So again, I'm going to echo probably other people here is that I don't think that there's like one really big thing, but it's a collective of small victories from not weighing myself every day to not weighing myself at all to uh, being able to eat foods that I formerly considered off limits. You know, it still sucks sometimes, but being able to sit back in the moment and realize, oh, it's not the pasta that's bad. I'm just feeling insecure about something. <laughs> being able to meet friends for dinner and pick something off the menu without asking for six modifications to it. <laughs> Um, that girl. Yeah. Yeah. 
And also just being able to show up at a restaurant with friends without having like obsessively looked up the menu online ahead of time. Is there something I can eat? Like having a plan of attack. (laughs) There's just a lot of little steps along the way that, that bring you freedom in different ways that you didn't realize that you were even being oppressed, you know, from the eating disorder. So, I mean, I think back to when I listened to some of those first episodes and then decided to sign up for the Courage Club. And it's like, again, now here I am sitting talking to you uh, on the podcast. And it's just getting to that point feels so big. You know, it was the right timing and it's made a lot of changes. And now just feeling like I'm even in a place where I can advocate for other people to believe that they can get better. Like I was right there. I, I, was also questioning, is this really possible? And so I think that's probably like a, if I had to say there's a big milestone, it's actually believing that, that it's possible. Oh, I love that. It is, right? It is. It's so cool. I love it. Everything is figure outable. Everything is. What do you appreciate most about your body? Well, I am solidly team earth suit for this. <laughs> this this body enables me to exist and interact with people and things in this world. And there is so much beauty and joy that you can engage with by just appreciating your body and allowing it to exist as it is and letting it take up space. And I really appreciate that my body never gave up on me <laughs> through the the mental anguish, the physical harm that I put myself in with the restricting and the diet pills and the dehydration. And all of those things are harmful to your brain and your heart. And this body has healed from all of that. And having taken some anatomy and physiology courses, it's it's incredible what the body can do to repair itself at the cellular level. Like we are really built to survive and and this body has done that. So resilient, right? So resilient. What is something you know now that you wish younger you would have heard when developing her beliefs about her body? I wish I wouldn't have heard, enjoy it while you can one day, it's going to catch up with you. But I wish I would have known that it's that it's okay to exist and your body, you know, allow your body to grow and to change. It's not meant to stay one way. The the privilege of getting older is that your body continues on this journey, both physically and mentally and spiritually. So changes through through those phases and, and that's normal. It's okay. And it's supposed to happen. I love that. Those are wise words for little Kim. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say to folks struggling to believe that they can be happy and healthy in their bodies no matter what they look like? Mm. Well, recovery is hard. Doing the work sucks. <laughs> And even though you're used to it, if we're being totally honest, the struggling that you are doing right now also really sucks. I see you. I get it. Feels defeating and exhausting. And maybe you've tried a few times and it didn't work out. And now you're just sick and tired of being sick and tired. Good. That's good news because you've already done really hard things. And that means you can absolutely recover. You're smart enough, you're brave enough, you're strong enough to get better. And there is a recovered version of you just waiting to be embraced. And you absolutely deserve to live your life in that version of yourself. I'm like pumped. Like we need to get Kim like motivational speaker, (laughs) like Tony Robbins, (laughs) like psych for eating disorders. I love it. I need a glass of that juice every morning. (laughs) (laughs) What's it like? And God damn it, people like you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, no, it's super motivating. I love it. I love it. Oh, Kim, well, yeah, your journey has just been so inspiring to me. And 
I love that you're, you know, you're continuing. I can tell you're such, um, you know, have such a strong growth mindset. And I think that's really what's helped you get, get to where you are and that you continue to want to level up in areas of your life now professionally more and just in these new activities and creative pursuits that you're, you're looking at. So I just, I love that, that that's part of the way you show up in the world and for yourself. Yep. Thank you. It, it took a long time to get there and <laughs> just appreciate the the work that you've done and, you know, just the materials and resources that you put out there that can open up people's minds to the possibilities of, of recovery and what you can do in your life. Oh, well, lovely listener, your body is a powerful and amazing instrument whose job is to carry you through this world and help you experience life. And so we are here for you. Subscribe and continue to follow this series and come join us on the path to body freedom and learn what it means to fully live in your body, regardless of your shape, your size, or the number on the scale. Go to recoverywarriors.com slash beyond to request an invite to apply for Beyond Body. This is our six-month body image accelerator program for middle-aged professional women with a history of an eating disorder. So once again, that's recoverywarriors.com slash beyond. We would love to connect with you close and a personal week after week for many months and many moons to do this deeper healing work together. Thank you so much for being a part of this.